0: Welcome to Bridges 2030 Visions with me, James Taylor. In this series, we ask experts and thought leaders from around the globe, how do we build a more sustainable and inclusive world in this decade and beyond? Today, we're joined by development finance expert, Dolika Banda. He's going to talk about arguably our biggest challenge in achieving the SDGs by 2030, Accelerating progress in what is sometimes called the global south. Are we doing enough? Are we doing it right? And are we doing it
1: fast enough to significantly shift the needle towards a more globally equitable playing field? Our governments have got to work in partnership with impact investors. They've got to make it easy, encouraging, incentivizing. We always think of these things as a problem of the South and not a problem of the North. But it will become worse as long as we don't make the South liveable.
0: Dolika is a veteran of the development finance world. She currently runs her own advisory business and she's a non-exec director at British International Investment, the former CDC group. She talks about not only the challenge, but also the opportunity of investing in Africa and the global South. However, she highlights the gap between investment rhetoric and reality. And she talks about what governments, investors and stock markets can do to really drive change.
1: My background is Zambian Originally, I call myself a global person. Lived in Washington, D.C. for over 16 years, working with the IFC, which is the DFI, um, part of the the arm of the World Bank Group, and then spent some time and still working today with uh, UKBII, what was then CDC Group. So a lot of development finance work, a lot of impact work, a lot of outcomes-related work. Before then, I was in finance, so Barclays, Citibank, And so very much on the financial side, so very much a finance person, very much an investment person, very much a DFI person. But at the same time, I think important to make it clear that I come at
0: this as an African and as an African woman. And just by way of context, perhaps you could give us a sense of what you think is the scale and the urgency of the challenge in Africa and the global South more broadly.
1: The one thing I can say to you um, and to the world through you is I do not sleep at the idea that 50% of women and roughly 66% of youth of the population of my country are disadvantaged in terms of woefully lacking access to social and economic channels for quality employment, empowerment, and therefore upliftment. Um, from poverty. In reality, every fifth to sixth member of my vastly extensive family or extended family is always looking to someone else to support in terms of day-to-day needs, be it food, security, medical support, educational opportunities, career opportunities, or even just access to capital for those who have ideas. So my extensive work over the many, many years with investment and development finance, including now, um, forces me to beg the question in terms of are we doing enough? Are we doing it right? And are we doing it fast enough to significantly shift the needle towards a more globally equitable playing field for all. I can go into some numbers. Reports suggest today that we need in the range of three trillion US dollars per annum to meet the SDGs by 2030 how do i reconcile a world where assets under management globally are well over 200 some say 300 trillion us dollars and yet when i look at the world bank global population demographics they show that per 2022 half of the global population today is living below US dollars per day. These are questions I ask myself every day. We always think of these things as a problem of the south and not a problem of the north, but it will become worse as long as we don't make the south livable. As long as we don't make the south livable, all of these people are going to migrate northwards, and that pressure is going to be on the infrastructure, on the social structure of of the Global North. And it is not designed to cope. Right now it's not designed to cope. Yeah. So it is a global problem. It's a global problem in a
0: way that it's never been before. I guess there's sometimes a danger of this being framed in the Global North as being about a population that needs saving almost. But there's a much more positive story to tell here, isn't there, about growth and opportunity and empowerment.
1: I I totally agree with that. And what excites me today, what excites me about being in Africa in particular today, but I think it's a story of Asia, South parts of East Asia. It is a story of parts of Latin America, is that there seems to be a new, a renewed sense of, of we've got to do this on our own. We've got to be just accorded the tools that give us the dignity, the tools that say we are not actually a hopeless Uh, population. We are actually a population that is very talented, very innovative, very creative, very engaged and very concerned about solving the problems that we are living through because we now realize that Nobody can understand and therefore provide a solution to the everyday problems that we experience. And so I think that we have an opportunity here to really seize that energy that says, yes, we can do. One of the DFIs with which I work, the CEO recently stated that finance and investment are not the panacea to solving the world's problems, but they certainly have to be part of the solution. Because what I see now, James, is a, a confluence of a willingness to engage in, in socially enabling and changing business models. And on the other hand, an absorption to receive that capital, that capacity, that technical assistance, that market creation, that network. So you have a confluence of demand and supply
0: that happens very rarely in economic cycles. And I think we're there at the moment. So you mentioned before about us not going fast enough. How do we accelerate progress? What are the areas that you think we need to focus on over the next decade? And so what are some of the things that I think need to we need to address? First of
1: all, I think mindset, we've got to accept that the demographics are what they are. It's got to have a loud voice in the impact narrative. And it's got to be part of the targets and it's got to be part of the measurement and it's got to be part of the impact assessment of what we are doing. We ignore it at our own peril, quite frankly, as investors. I think the second thing that we've got to keep in mind is the impact of climate and the action that we are going to take as investors. And so I think that conversation around the politics of climate and how we balance the immediate need of the outcome with the longer term solution, in terms of where the funding goes, I think that's a very important component.
0: Are you saying that we're not getting the balance right currently between what we're spending on mitigation and resilience and adaptation?
1: Mitigation is something that we all, myself included, um, accept we need to do for the global good. But remember that when we have a flood, when we have a tropical cycle, when we have a drought, What really changes the game, what really saves lives, what really puts food on the table is focusing equally in terms of capital deployed into adaptation and into resilience. Who does that across the spectrum? Is, 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 for conversation. Is it humanitarian aid? Is it the, is it the funders? Is it corporates? But the fact is you've got to bring up front and center adaptation and particularly resilience. It's not either or. For me, it's a balance across the spectrum of the three mitigation, adaptation, resilience. I think the third component that I would explain is what I like to call the inexplicable inequalities because if I look at the website of some of our most successful global corporates, it is inexplicable to me that these institutions can be listed on the London Stock Exchange, Toronto Stock Exchange, Paris Stock Exchange with market valuations in the billions of dollars. And yet you look at Bangladesh for the garment industry, Zambia for the extractive industries, you look at the societies and the communities from which that value is extracted, there is a horrible discrepancy. I think there is a role there for us as investors, as global corporate boardrooms, as stock exchanges who are listing these institutions to question why this disparity. I am sitting in the shoes of the least emitting constituencies in the global package. So if you take coal, mitigation requires that we completely stop coal. What we have traditionally termed just transition is actually not just. Because what it is saying is, I am sitting in London or Washington, D.C. or New York. Um, I have a very industrialized country. It manufactures whatever it wants to do. I will continue to emit. But I'm asking you, Zambia, not to do any more coal. And by the way, because you are such a low emitter, sell me your carbon credits. And allow me to continue to do what I'm doing on the back of your inability to develop your economy because coal is probably fossil fuels is probably the easiest and the cheapest way and the already established way for you to develop your industry which you need now because we go back to the demographics you've got a group of people who are now just coming into development economic empowerment they need that energy um so 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 there is a dichotomy there
0: You're listening to Bridges 2030 Visions, a series about how we accelerate progress towards a more sustainable and inclusive world over the next decade. Can we talk about what needs to change practically? If you were world king for the day or world queen, um, what do we do to really move the needle, do you think?
1: there is a lot
0: of work that we need to do
1: and this conversation is not about blame game or holding people up or naming and shaming it is about sharing where we think different priorities are for different members of our society I would say first of all The corporate world, the social world, I think has accepted the concept of socially inclusive and impact investing and is willing to be held accountable for it. I think that our governments and political machinery have got to own this concept fully and integrally. It has to be ingrained and embedded in all national strategic plans and bilateral negotiations. The second, which is related to the first, is that our governments have got to work in partnership with impact investors. They've got to make it easy, encouraging, incentivizing impact investors to actually come into our various countries. I'm talking global south. We give incentives to normal corporates, to mining companies, to investors on taxes, all sorts of things. We should do the same for impact investing. This is the lever that is going to move our economies into growth economies, into supporting SMEs, small businesses, women-owned businesses, youth-owned businesses, into economic contributors and drivers of change in our countries. The second I'd like to say is the funders and investors themselves. Every website I go to of a major investor in most of my, or most of the countries on the African continent, has this beautiful dialogue and narrative on inclusion, on gender, on social uh, upliftment, on education, on climate. And yet when I see that commitment and we have committed a billion dollars to this particular country, this particular sector, the global North has committed X billions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars, when I look at the disbursement of those funds, there is a vast difference. A vast difference. I cannot quantify it for you, but if 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 I commit a hundred million dollars, I maybe have dispersed 10, if anything, at all, because the disbursement process is so encumbered. So so that's my plea to funders and investors. Walk the talk. My third, I think, is in the corporate world. Board-driven ownership and accountability is absolutely critical. It is the board that drives accountability. It is the board that drives incentives and delivery. And so I think the role of the boardroom is extremely important. And this is something that's very personal to me. And I'm involved now with a company um, that, that is looking at how do we ensure that boards own the whole concept of impact, social, inclusive investment going forward, the world of the future. 21st century governments and beyond. And then my last, I would like to bring in the stock exchange and stock markets uh, globally and locally, and how they are very critical for accountability, measurement and transparency. I know that the London Stock Exchange has done a lot of work um, on transparency, inclusive, gender and all of this. Would love to see more of that.
0: Is it partly a question, do you think, as well, of changing the way that investors think about the risk of investing in these countries? I think that's the big issue,
1: uh, James, but I would say there are two components to that issue. One is that the perceived risk is higher than the actual risk. But the second is that we have to find ways and mechanisms and tools for demonstrating that That risk is not actually as high as it is by putting in de-risking tools, credit enhancements for the purpose of demonstrating, giving comfort to investors that over time, actually, you do not lose your money. But when you do hit the one that goes out of the ballpark, you do well. There is a perception today that anything that is not commercially hard, commercial, IRR-driven, if you're in emerging markets, it's got to be double-digit, upper 15s to 20s IRR return. And I think one of the drives that I'm really very, very strongly supporting, and it is happening in one of the DFIs on which I sit, is to really unbundle through data and empirical evidence this concept that impact investing is is more risky or less return. That I don't believe. I think there's work for us to do there in terms of redefining and unlearning our perceptions and attitudes toward risk with a combination of qualitative as well as quantitative data, empirical evidence and analysis. That's a big one. And that is what drives that disparity between we commit 100 million, but hey, we can't disperse because conditions of disbursements have not been met. So the donor community spends a lot of money on grants, non returnable grants. I think there is an opportunity here for a few to take the leadership to actually support the analysis, the research, and the gathering of metadata it's got to be metadata so so for me centers of excellence research education and donors have a big role to play on the data gathering side and the empirical evidence side
0: so how doable is all this are you optimistic that we can make all this stuff happen over the next decade i I am the ultimate optimist i when
1: it comes to people that to issues that matter to the globe i rather say, how can we do it, not do we do it? This this is an imperative. So you cannot shy away and say, I can't solve it, it's too big a problem. As I always say, if you're not part of the solution, then you're certainly part of the problem. When I walk and I see a woman who tells me in Zambia, I have started a climate-friendly clothes manufacturing company, and I'm going to make you one. That gives me optimism. When I run into my nephew and he says, by the way, I've now gone into waste management. I'm going into the high density areas. We will collect waste. We will dry it up, convert it into energy. These are young people doing this. That gives me optimism. Those things give me hope and those things give me uh, optimism. And those things also give me the drive to say we can't stop now.
0: You've been listening to Bridges 2030 Visions with me, James Taylor. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, why not like, subscribe, share, download extra episodes, or even leave us a nice five star review somewhere. Thanks for joining us.